Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. I never really thought about tools until I bought a house in the suburbs. It's like this weird homeowner test if I need a tool for a project and don't have it. And my neighbor Ted loves to give me that look when I ask to borrow a pole saw. A year ago, I didn't even know pole saws existed. And now I gotta borrow one from Ted? What is happening? Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. Welcome to Rock's Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm on Zoom with my co-hosts, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Murison-Bowie. Hello, Barney. For this episode, we're joined all the way from Houston, Texas, by the great Michael Zilka. Hi, Michael. So nice to be here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) We're we're thrilled to have you on our podcast to talk about, among other things, your legendary Z label and also about John Cale and the Velvet Underground. Shall we go back to the start of your musical story? One of the things you and I have in common is that we both went to the same public school in London (laughs) and were both obsessed with Neil Young's album Tonight's the Night so you were just a little ahead of me on that Westminster boys oh we're outed we're outed that's it well I went to the under school so I was was almost there but I wasn't (laughs) good enough to get a ball wasn't good enough to get in the main school. But Barney, I don't know if you were in Busby's where you could sneak out the dustman's entrance at the back and go to <laughs> midnight court at the Lyceum. I wasn't in Busby's. I was next door in Rigo's, but I would go into Busby's quite a lot to smoke things with uh, certain right. Busbyites. <laughs> yes. Um, and it was very lax there. Under well, we, We've got to stop. To, this is no good. We're going to no, lose, no, no. We're gonna lose hundreds of <laughs> listeners in about two minutes okay so what were what were your first musical what was the first musical uh, thing that happened to you that made you like a passionate fan of kind of pop music i started with film soundtracks i went to see lawrence of arabia and if you bought a copy of the seven pillars of wisdom even if you didn't understand a word of it and you own the soundtrack (laughs) and you had the program because they had these glossy programs in those days that came when you went to the cinema, you could relive the film over and over again. And so I think my attraction to cinematic music and music that told stories actually comes from that. So since there was no video, and you only got to see a film once or twice if you were lucky, Mm. that was the way to relive cinema. And that's That's how I first started responding to music. And then in terms of pop music, I guess it was just, it was in the air. Brian Epstein had this Savile Theatre that had shows on Sunday nights when I would have been 12 or 13. And in return for walking around the golf course with my dad, (laughs) he would take me Sunday nights 
to the Savile Theatre. And a typical bill, the first one I ever saw was Fairport Convention, Tim Rose, who'd written Morning Dew, uh-huh. Incredible String Band, and Pink Floyd. And they did it twice in the night. We went to the early show. So that was when I was really becoming conscious of music. And I had a great year. And when I was 12, I switched from the French educational system to the British educational system. And so I was sent to a crammer, which didn't provide lunch. So I was given (laughs) seven and six for lunch every day. And instead of buying lunch, I spent seven shillings and tuppence on a single every day. I went to Harlequin Records in Pimlico. And so I accumulated a really good collection of singles. And sometimes I'd save up for the whole week and buy an LP. So I watched Top of the Pops. I, I remember Ready, Steady, Go, but it, it it had less resonance for me because I was younger. Yeah, and then I just knew what was going to happen. I I always did. It was just sort of there for me. In one of the two pieces, Michael, that we're, f- we're featuring on the homepage, you talk about having basically a white hippie sensibility, I think you you self-describe. And hearing your memories of like, you know, Fairport Convention at the Savile Theatre, that makes sense. Of course, it's it's slightly at odds with the image that people have of you at the helm of Z Records, which is which is very much not a kind of white hippie label. But that's that's where you sort of came in. Like a lot of people at the school we went to. Yes. Yeah, I would say <laughs> I view Z as a lyrics-based label. So in that respect, it isn't that different. I mean, maybe the method of delivery is different. Right. (laughs) But but the actual sort of sensibility, content, all of that, um, a little bit more worldly, possibly. Sure. But what was... What was a hippie sensibility? I mean, you had so many different incarnations of hippie. You had sort yes. of, you had Luke's hippie, you had flower child hippie. Yeah. The, there were all these different incarnations. So I, I think it kind of fit in in that respect. And some of it was very stylish. I mean, the Mothers of Invention definitely had a look and a sensibility. And the Velvet Underground, my favorite band of all time, that... The Velvet Underground and the Beach Boys are my two favorite American bands. Actual okay. bands as opposed to Bob Dylan, who is okay. obviously, you know, in a firmament above anyone in the world. But, <laughs> um, but, but the, the Velvet Underground and the Beach Boys each had a style. Kid Creole had a style. James Chance had a style. It's all about sort of image. So I, I don't really sort of think of hippie as that different than anything else I no mean, no whether richard thompson had a style I, <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> well he had a guitar style oh, he's <laughs> unreal yeah he's yeah, unbelievable yeah. that yeah, yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. yeah well i just i just wanted to say okay, that i was recalling that we had our mutual friend mary harron on the podcast uh, probably about ooh, well over a year ago and yes. um I hadn't realized that you'd been at Oxford with her. And so revisiting this piece she wrote about you in 1981, I'm just going to read this out. I, I, at Oxford, where he studied French and philosophy, Michael was memorable as a slight displaced figure 
trailing about in a long, filthy Macintosh, expounding with passionate but unconvincing enthusiasm (laughs) on the true meaning of the latest American horror movie or the new Neil Young album, and hence my reference to Tonight's the Night. Uh, I mean, do you remember the Macintosh, and do you remember uh, trailing around? I do remember the the Macintosh. I don't remember the horror movies. I definitely (laughs) remember Tonight's the Night is really interesting because I saw that concert twice in a week. And the first one was Guy Fawkes Night, and it was at the Lyceum, and Neil Young was wearing a beard and he was in dark glasses and a dark, dark space. The Eagles were the opening act. And it was extraordinary. And you really felt like the songs were going to collapse. And then somehow they pulled through. And on the Saturday at the Royal Festival Hall, he'd shaved his beard. And it was a totally upbeat, disorienting experience where he was, <laughs> he was sort of more energetic than the Eagles. It was it was just so bizarre. So, so I do I do remember that. I do remember the Mac. I, what I, the thing with Mary Harron is that she and Patrick Winter were the editors of Isis, the Oxford right. magazine, and I was given the center two pages for a year to write about what I thought was happening in, at Oxford, and I didn't know much that was happening, but I could say things like 10CC <laughs> are the best British band right now. Okay. And, you know, and n- no one was going to argue with me because no one cared. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was really good. <laughs> um, and then you ended up in New York, uh, and Mary also ended up in New York because yes. she talked about that. And, and when she was on our, our podcast, I didn't even realize that you wrote for John Holmstrom's punk magazine because i don't think i ever saw the first couple of episodes but there you are and you you collaborated with mary i think when she was like doing the first ever ramones interview so you were you were kind of right there let me ask you what took you to new york in the first place what took me to new york is that when i got to oxford i realized i wasn't english (laughs) because there was a whole other level of Englishness that we at Westminster Mm. were not aware of. Yeah. You know, where, I mean, I'd have probably stayed if I was the firstborn of, you know, a very wealthy earl or (laughs) duke. (laughs) But that wasn't the case. And I figured I would go to America. I had an American passport because right. because my family are uh, Iraqi Jewish refugees. Yeah. They had emigrated to America and my parents, even though they were living in Europe, went to America to have me so that I would have an American passport. Mm-hmm. So I had that. And I just figured that I'd done my 20 years in London and in England, and that life would be so circumscribed if I stayed there, that I would go and do something new. Plus, I had a feeling about music that I needed to be there. It took me about three days to find CBGBs. <laughs> That's all. Mm. You, you know, it, I basically lived for music. That was, that was the only thing I cared about. It, it's always been. I mean, I care about books. And I care about my family and my friends, but really I care about music. <laughs> <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> 
Yeah, well, I'm not going to ask you to sort of list those things in order. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> but, but I did need to go there. I mean, did you, you, I'm guessing you arrived in, was it as early as 75 or was it 75? I arrived in June of 75. What a perfect time to arrive, really. What a perfect time. <laughs> talking Heads were, Talking Heads played every other weekend at CBGB's. They were a trio, which Mary and I wrote in that article we wrote about them, that they should be more than a trio, which was pretty prescient. <laughs> and then television didn't play until September when they played at a club called Mothers. But the Ramones were playing. The Dictators were playing. Mm-hmm. There was a band I saw once called Uneasy Sleeper, who I don't remember their music, but the name is spectacular. <laughs> it, 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 was just, it was just so cool. You know, and then there was a lot more to New York as well. There were the jazz clubs on 52nd Street. Those were fantastic. Of course. It, was, it just felt like the place to be. And, and I sort of, so I was doing freelance and reviewing plays for the Village Voice, although I'd wanted to write about music. But, but I didn't get to. And so, and then, you know, articles for places like New York Magazine on how to buy a stereo and stuff like that. <laughs> you know, just, just stuff one would do. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then I met Christina, who was also reviewing plays at the Village Voice. Oh. And so we would, I learned a lot more about theatre from her. And then we would, and we would go, and see music all the time. Patti Smith didn't play until the spring of the following year when she played Avery Fisher Hall, when Horses came out. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I didn't see television until September. Okay. I knew I wanted to, but I went and bought Little Johnny Jewel at the Gotham Book Mart, which is where it was sold. It was, I think it was on Orc Records. It's yes. It's got a red label, Yeah. But Talking Heads I saw all the time and became friends with pretty much immediately. One thing that that interests me talking about this great New York kind of scene is that in that same Mary Harron piece that Barney mentioned earlier, you're quoted as saying, all great music is created in a vacuum. Isn't that somehow at odds with being so deeply embedded in in that New York scene where stuff was kind of playing off itself, off each other? Yes, I I reread that yesterday. (laughs) I was was wondering, but I think what I probably meant is that it comes from one person so talking heads are a band but you could argue i guess that david burns brain is a vacuum i mean it's sui gen- <laughs> no is that it's sui generis it's his right in the same way that you know was not was was a melding of two minds mm-hmm. but my other bands the waitresses is chris butler's mind kid creole is august's mind Maybe that's what I meant, is that it's kind of... It, and that would be returning to the idea of singer-songwriters, wouldn't it? Yeah, for and, sure. Um, Bob Dylan's himself. I mean, I yes, Brownsville Girl is a collaboration with Sam Shepard. So there have been some extraordinary collaborations of his, but mm. mostly it's just Bob Dylan. I can say this because it's on Wikipedia anyway. I mean, you had a trust fund, so we can we can say that. Now, yes. at, at what point <laughs> did you think about starting a label? I think you might have thought about starting a magazine first, and then it was a label. So what was the germ of that, Michael? Okay, so I went and interviewed John Cale for Interview Magazine, and we became really good friends. 
And we were hanging out together and he and Jane Friedman, his manager and his partner, came to me and said, this thing punk is happening in England and we should start making singles. And at the time I was doing a publishing course that had actually been devised for me at Condé Nast. And I was selling magazine advertising, but instead of selling for each individual magazine, there were six at the time, I wrote a presentation for all the magazines at once so we could get American Express or someone to advertise in all the magazines at once. So that's what I was doing. And I wanted to leave that. So I went and reviewed plays in Berlin for two months, or I think, and John played Hamburg, and we decided then that we would start Spy Records. And so I put up not a lot of money for Spy Records, and we started recording these singles, and I knew nothing about the process. And I would have saved a lot of money if I'd Instead of going to Condé Nast, I'd gone to a record company and trained there, but I didn't. And so, <laughs> and so we started making records, and John at the time had some substance issues. <laughs> but, but they were the wrong ones to sort of run a business. And, you know, he's been fine for years, so I'm sure this isn't secret and talking no. out of time. And so it wasn't a totally successful partnership. But the Harry Toledo and the Rockets record that we put out and the Marie de Garçon record are really, really good. And we made an incredible record with Bob Neweth, which I keep asking him to find the tapes of. And he says they're somewhere, but I don't know where they are. It's called Soldier of Fortune, and it's brilliant with this organ okay. pad and oh. Bobby Neweth sort of declaiming on Declaim, it. Declaiming, yes. Yeah. I've never heard that, but I no. do have the Lester Bangs record you put oh, out. Oh, which is great, yeah. But talking about Bobby Newworth, he, in the, the, the John Cale interview we're going to be talking about later, he's yes. fantastically rude about Bobby Newworth, which may explain why he's mislaid the tapes. <laughs> that is so irritating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. I, I really, I would like to hear that record again. It was so cool. I, had I been more organized and a better archivist, then of course I'd have a cassette of it somewhere. But oh, well, <laughs> maybe don't. we can dig it up somewhere. But yeah. Michael Esteban comes into the picture. Obviously, I think John Cale yeah. introduces you yes. to Monsieur Esteban from Paris. Yes. And at a certain point, you you slope off with him and form Z Records based on your initials of your surnames. So tell yes. us tell us about that moment when you and Michael, the other Michael, well, go off and form Z. Well, it was Z. Michelle. So what happened was that Michelle was also possibly going to get involved with Spy Records, but it became very clear that he shouldn't. <laughs> and he said, why don't we go off together? And I had this single disco clone that John was working on, and it wasn't sounding quite right. And so... I took the single, left them everything else, and started this label with Michelle, not worrying about the fact that Michelle Esteban was an ex-con. He had <laughs> been to jail for burglary. He wasn't very old by then. He might have been 26 or something, but he'd already done jail. I was more impressed by the cut of his trousers. He explained to me that instead <laughs> of them being cut straight, they were cut in a balloon, which a, a very subtle balloon which 
made you look taller or something. I mean, it was really interesting. <laughs> I, he was very, very elegant. And he was sort of raffish and, you know, a little louche. But it, so we started this record company, but fortunately, I signed all the American bands to my, we never actually formed the company. So I signed all the American bands to myself, and he had Lizzie and Casino Music signed to him, and Marie Les Garçons, and then Les Garçons. So it was a very easy partnership to break up because I had the contortions, Teenage Jesus, Lydia. I'd started Christina. I'd, the waitress said I, I, I'd started with August. But what he did was develop a fantastic visual identity for the label. You know, the, the yellow taxi, all those 12 inches. The visuals were spectacular and that was all him. But the music was mine his his ideas his ideas about music were very different than mine he thought one should try and be as commercial as possible and i thought one should try and be as authentic as possible right. so he took a great band marie les garçons which were maybe the one of the three premier french rock bands you know young punk rock bands like telephone and he turned them into a disco band with all these session musicians in New York, and they fired Marie, the drummer, because she couldn't keep up with this sort of 300-pound studio musician who was sort of <laughs> an amazing drummer. The, the, suddenly you had background singers who'd been on Musiques in the Bush. Oh, you, you know, rather... Yeah. Than, so, so he basically destroyed the band and turned them into Les Garçons, dressed by Thierry Nugler, looking completely out of place, when they had been fabulous. I've never actually expressed it like this before or thought about it like this, but this is what he did. And so my theory was you took the raw talent and you tried to make it more accessible without, you know, destroying its essence. So the greatest success would be Queen of Siam. Because if you listen to Lydia's, Lydia's band then was Teenage Jesus and the Jerks, but I saw her as this sort of incredible vamp torch singer. Gorgeous. Well, she was always a gorgeous creature. I mean, she's, she's just, she's just fantastic. She's so spunky, so alive. But in that record, Queen of Siam, we captured something of her that I don't think anyone would have seen going in. And Bob Blank did a brilliant job of producing it with her. Mm, mm. And Bob Quine was there the whole time. I, I mean, it was, I think in terms of sort of how not to transform a band, it would be what Michel did with the Garçons and how to help someone reach their potential. It would be Lydia and Queen of Siam. So that's why we split up, quite apart from the fact that I paid tour support for the Garçons to tour pa France and he didn't pay me back. 
<laughs> so there's always a practical element to such there's a practical well. but it was more than that it was a philosophical yeah. element too and also if you think about the contortions in James White and the Blacks it's something similar again you know slowing them down and again Lydia's there on stained sheets Yes, completely. Absolutely. In one of these pieces, you talk about, and I don't know whether this was a sort of overriding concept for Z Records, but you talk about wanting to create, quote unquote, the first intellectual disco music. And and in a sense, that was this extraordinary stable of artists that that you you put together does slightly represent that. Uh, I mean, I think you say somewhere after I saw Saturday Night Fever, I thought, could we create the, the sort of dance version of what's happened at CBGB's, the whole punk thing. And 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 in a way, Z is a sort of fusion of an almost punky no-wave sensibility and this very, very sort of multi-ethnic, cosmopolitan, New York style of music. I mean, is that, did you set out to create something like that, Michael? I set out to create a, re- a repertory company. Right. Because, um, I'd grown up going to repertory theatre, you know, in in London, and um, I thought I thought that if one did it that way, there would be a meld. You, you know, two plus two or three plus three could really make nine. Mm. So, so, <laughs> so, so, so that was that was it. And I was very fortunate because all of these artists had a very strong sense of who they were and what they wanted to do. So. It was, and it was easy for them to work together. And Bob Blank was really instrumental in this because his his studio is where we operated, and there were three rooms, and sometimes we we were using all three rooms. Mm. And then, if you look at something like, I guess the Christmas record would be where you sort of see it all come together in a way, because even if people aren't playing on each other's records, Christina's produced by Don and David. You have Alan Vega and you have Suicide. Yeah. Everyone is, is there. One thing that really strikes me is that it could only have happened in New York, what, what yeah. happened in Z. And that's because it, it encompasses everything that's happening in New York. There's a strong Latin influence in chunks of stuff. There's the loft art scene. There's all of this sort of stuff merging on a single label. And I, I've just been looking through the discography, and it's astonishing. I mean, Z Records is a lifesaver for me around 1980, 1981. Oh, thank you, Mark. Well, 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 because, you know, British post-punk, I like the idea of post-punk, but I really didn't like the noise anyone was making terribly. Right. I I love black music and I loved art stuff, you know, and all of that's in there. And it's just mm. extraordinary. And it's so New York. It's unbelievable. It is. Although Was Not Was, I think, are the ultimate Detroit Z band. band. <laughs> yes. no, but they're also the ultimate Z band. Yeah. Because when Don, I got a call from the jazz critic at the LA Herald Examiner to say that there was this extraordinary record that was on its way and that someone was going to come and play it to me. So I was very excited because I always took calls from critics because they know what's going on and I have have a soft spot for journalists. <laughs> and, so, um, and, then, and then Don arrived and he played me Wheel Me Out. Oh. And I thought, this is everything I've ever ever wanted to do on this record <laughs> mm-hmm. and so and and you know, it turned out that the jazz critic was david was 
so who had called me and announced the arrival of this record. <laughs> and and I had no money to sign them at the time because Morris Levy, I, we had done a bad distribution deal and had a number one dance hit with Deputy of Love. And we'd gone to to Arista through Buddha, and Buddha owed Arista a lot of money. So Arista wasn't paying Buddha, who couldn't pay us. So we were really in a financial mess, and the trust fund was gone. And so they gave me the record to put out. And then I went and settled with Morris Levy for 40 cents on the dollar so that I could make the Was Not Was album. Morris oh Levy. Oh, my gosh. Jesus. Morris Levy. Yeah. <laughs> Morris Levy. Yeah. Yeah. Count but, but, your but, fingers after shaking yeah, hands you, with him. You're still alive. This is the good news. I know. But have you, have you read Tommy James of Tommy James and the Shondells autobiography? No, I've heard about it. And it's, it's so good. That's the Morris Levy book. Right. Okay. It's fantastic. <laughs> But so many great records, as Mark says. I mean, I wrote down a few of them. I mean, I, I love the fact that you, you asked James Chance to sort of form a kind of disco version of the Contortions, which was James White and the Black. So Contort Yourself was just fantastic. Suicide's Dream Baby Dream. Oh, man. My God. I've even got the Oral Exciters spooks in space somewhere in my record collection. <laughs> and, then, and then like Cozy Mundi, Mino Popeye, which is the first kind of what? Like, oh. That's like, in my. That's still yeah. in my my record bag today. It's just yeah. an essential, oh. yeah. essential record. I saw Kikriol, I think it was 82 at the Lyceum, maybe 83. One of the best shows 82. I've ever seen in my life. It's just fantastic, yeah. mm, you know. Mm, mm, yeah. And then Christina's Is That All There Is? Yeah. Which, which um, you yeah. know, must be the most jaded record ever made. I mean, it's obviously a cover, but it is, it's world-weary uh, beyond all description, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, yeah. so so just tell us a bit. When you met Christina as early as what, 77 we, or something? We met in 75. Oh my gosh, right, right at the beginning, yeah. At the Village Voice. And we moved in together within a week or so, and she was my first girlfriend. The other reason I moved to New York was I was five foot two when I got to university, and I was five foot seven when I finished three years later, and I decided to start life again at five foot seven. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So she was, she was my first girlfriend. So we, yeah, moved in together right away, and... When I heard Disco Clone, she, she, Christina was a great, she was really good at sort of singing theater tunes, show tunes. She was, mm. she, she was really good at that. So she didn't have a great voice and it wasn't very strong, but her acting abilities were really good. Mm. So that was what I, I started working with her because I didn't know who, you know, who else to work with. Because when you're starting out, it's not so easy to sort of find people to record for you when you've never put out a record. One of the reasons for James White and the Blacks was that Anya Phillips and James didn't want to give me the contortions, their crown jewel, because I'd never put out a record. So by developing James White and the Blacks and not making them exclusive, you know, I, I was able to make a record with James. And then as soon as that record was finished they signed the contortions to me because I'd now made a record, even if I hadn't put it out. Right, 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 right. right. 
so I was in the business. So, um, so that's how I started with Christina. And first experiments with August, you know, were with Christina. And right. then we, and then we started working on Don Armando's Second Avenue Rumba Band and Kid Creole and the Coconuts. Mm-hmm. Don was his first outside producing job ever was Christina. Okay. So he'd never produced anyone other than was not was before. And so he'd never produced anything really until we met. Mm. So Christina could sort of be sent in, you know, to figure things out. I see. This Paul Rambali piece, which is which is from late 1981, the title is "Why is this man hip but a complete failure?" Um, and <laughs> I, I mean, ironically, you were about <laughs> you were about to strike gold, as it were, with with Kid yes. Creole. But what's interesting is that it's a profile of you, and and what I remember because I was I just started writing for the Enemy at this time. The Enemy really loved you and really took yeah. Z Records to to its breast, didn't it? And and this Rambali piece is fabulous. In an email yesterday, you told me that um, <laughs> he, he was there to interview, or well, was in Paris to interview Jane Birkin. Can you take up the right. story from there? Well, what happened was I had produced someone called Charles-Élie Couture for Island Records. Chris had signed this French artist, and I heard him, and I loved what he did. And the first record had sold about 8,000 copies. But I was sharing offices at the time with Rick Newman from Catch a Rising Star, who was Pat Benatar's manager. And I knew that Pat Benatar was huge in France. So what I figured was, we made a record at Electric Ladyland Studios with Charles de Couture. And what I figured was, if we got a pickup band from... Long Island that were like a generic rock band. And we put them with Charles Lee, who has this really strange voice and is a brilliant, brilliant writer, but was much more a chansonnier. That if we combined these two things, and then I had this great engineer, Michael Frondelli, who I gave a co-production credit to in the end. And, you know, we did all the tricks I'd learned with Was Not Was, pulling out the drums, doing this, doing that dub stuff. We made this record that he, I think he told me it's, it's like at 400,000 copies in France now. I mean, it's a huge album. And this was the coming out for that album. And he was playing the Olympia and his subsequent records, he didn't hire me again. And his subsequent sales were much more similar to his earlier sales. But, <laughs> like but, but he didn't think I'd done much, but I'd actually done a lot in, uh. in conceiving it. So anyway, Paul Rambali went with me to Paris to see Charlotte de Couture. And then he was interviewing Jane Birkin. I think it was for Tatler, but I'm not sure. The next day, and I said, Oh, please, please, can I come? Because <laughs> I love Jane Birkin so much. You know, I wasn't able to see Blowout because it was rated X when it came out, but I did subsequently many, many times. And I knew all her records and I idolized Serge Gainsbourg. I, I love French 
quick digression going back, French pop music. Yeah. When I was 11 and 12, that's what I would listen to a lot. I knew all, all those singles. So The yeah, yeah stuff. Anyway, and, yeah. yeah, the yeah, yeah stuff. I, I knew that. Be, hey. Look at that. I had that. <laughs> you are the coolest. Jasper is showing us. <laughs> that first LP. <laughs> so, so anyway, so I, I tagged along to the lunch and I, I was trying to let the journalist get his interview, but then, you know, I just keep asking questions. What was happening when this was sung? And what do you think of that? And it turned out that she thought L'Homme à la Tête du Chou is her favorite Serge Gainsbourg album. I went back and listened to it several times and I still think Ballad de Melody Nelson is mine. I agree. Yeah. It's an absolute masterpiece. It's an it? absolute masterpiece. It it's really just, is. It's just flawless. Yes. So, um, yeah, so, so I tagged along. And then I sent her all the records I'd put out, but I never heard back. And then I saw her once because her husband, Jacques Doyon, was showing a film at the Carnegie Hall Cinema, and I was there. And I think she looked really alarmed when she saw me. <laughs> so I made myself scarce. But she is a goddess. Oh, and then on my 40th birthday, I was in London. And the day before she played, I think it was at the Savoy Theatre. She did a gig and she was in a t-shirt and a white t-shirt and blue jeans. And I was with my sister, Nadia. And when she came on stage... Nadia just burst into tears and started sobbing. I've never seen anything like it. It was like <laughs> Beatlemania. But, <laughs> but this 38-year-old who, this was it for her. Oh, amazing. How lovely. Ça, c'est l'histoire de Melody Nelson. Qu'apparent moi-même, personne. Well, that's a lovely digression, but I am yeah. now going to get us back on track by holding yeah, up the cover of Mutant Disco, yes. um, <clears throat> which, which I remember is, I mean, just to refer back to the point about NME uh, having a massive crush on everything to do with Z Records, the liner notes for that were written yeah. by, by Ian Penman. Yeah. And of course, what I'm, I totally forgotten was that it was compiled by the late Rob Partridge, the lovely Rob Partridge, who was, at, of course, you would have known at Ireland, and I knew as, a, as a, the head of press at Ireland. But this was, a, yeah. this was an important record. I know Mark had, had a copy of Mutant. Oh, Disney. yes. And we, oh, all yes. Just, <laughs> I, we all just fell in love with that that idea of mutant disco it just sums up a lot of what you were doing especially with sort of groups like suicide in there somehow even suicide fell into that idea of mutant disco <laughs> yes. yeah i'd just like to say about rob partridge that there wouldn't have been a z records without rob partridge because okay. i wasn't selling any records and so chris kept thinking you know why am i bothering with this but newspapers like NME and magazines like The Face saying if it's on Z, buy it. Rob Partridge and then Neil Story were my big champions who said, you can't drop this label, Chris. And Chris was paid back within three months in the summer of 1982. But, you know, I, I probably owed him £250,000, sure. which is a lot of money. Yes. And <laughs> without that press department at Ireland and Rob in particular, I would not have been able to go on. Oh, that's a fantastic story. Yeah. Yeah, so when Kid Krell takes off and they're on top of the pops, you, you're able to pay Chris Blackwell back to some degree. Or some totally, of this. So, totally. Completely. That's brilliant. Yeah. So, 
That yeah. is absolutely fantastic. I'm just looking through the track listing on Mutant Disco, and it's just <laughs> astonishing. It's absolutely <laughs> astonishing. What a great record. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's such yeah. a great concept as well, because it's like it takes disco, obviously much maligned in, in various aspects, but there's something very compelling about disco. But then the mutant aspect kind of sets it off and kind of lets you know that it's going to be weird and fun and different and i i mean i, yes. I love that record as well having yeah, well, a subtle obviously dis- much much later but discalation I, I a, a, su- a subtle discalation <laughs> of the norm a classic <laughs> subtitle i love the way it has a subtitle it's like a novel it's got a subtitle lizzie mercier des clous is a, a oh. that mambo nassau record was another yes. record absolutely loved and still really love she's interesting she's really interesting and she was michelle's artist yeah. Although I stayed friends with her until the end. And I think the Rosa Yemen 12-inch is extraordinary. Have you ever heard that? I don't think I have. That's her and Michelle's brother, Didier, and they're playing guitar. And it's, it's, there's a song called Herpes Simplex Virus Number Three. <laughs> it's, just, it's just, it's just, it's really, really extraordinary. That, okay. of, of those early 12-inches we made, that's my favorite. And then, and then there's, there's David Sigerson as well. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he's actually going to be on the podcast in about like a month or something like that. So Fantastic. it's just going to give a really more, more Z stories. But he was somewhat of an anomaly, but a great hero of ours as a writer yeah and and, um obviously one of the best writers on kind of black music and disco in that era how did Mm -hmm. he end up on the label well david wrote something really mean about me (laughs) that's how you get on that that's how you got on z and and so i wanted to meet him because you know i was curious (laughs) there was there was a strange article I can't remember who, who wrote it. I don't think it was John Savage, but it might have been where Christina and I are rolling around on the floor of blank tapes fighting each other. And I, th- I think that that was when we weren't really sort of very press savvy. And, and, um, David wrote something ab- snarky about sort of, you know, trust fund music and so i i met him and he said you know well i make records and so he played me some of his demos and i loved them i especially loved this song break my heart which they're in a wagon lit and they're sort of going across europe and it's very very loud guitars and so we made a record together and it got absolutely no traction which was very Sad. I think the problem with my records is that I didn't have the best singers. I was always interested in the song, the lyric, the personality, the rhythm, the relationship of the bass to the drums. Mm-hmm. But I never really worried. If you think about it, Sweet P. Atkinson, he's a very serviceable singer, a, a one, a be- beautiful person, but he's not an extraordinary singer who emotes like Levi Stubbs or something. Sure. So, and August is a special sort of singer, but I didn't have really fantastic singers. And I think in David's case that that's also part of it. I don't know that he really sold the songs, but the songs themselves were fantastic. I mean, 
a song about a car crash and the couple going over the car going over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah, how wonderful that is! So, but it, it's very interesting what you say about the singers because I, I actually you're absolutely right. And when I think of Z Records, and I do think of Z Records as a coherent whole, is that yeah. each record is is its own sort of microclimate, its environment. It's got all these elements going on, all these things going on, and so it doesn't need. In a way, as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't need the great, powerful lead singer. Though I absolutely understand why you say that. Actually, in, in commercial terms, that was fairly disastrous. But but they have a, a, a unique personality, each record of its own. They yeah. they do. I mean, Alan Vega is a great singer in his way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But, but he he's he's himself. But then, of course, Bob Dylan and Neil Young are, are themselves. But somehow they sell the songs. Yeah, they've yeah. they've got there's an ability to sell it's more than just shops i think sure mm. so in 1984 you wind the label down but not before in a sense the story sort of comes well at least half circle if not full circle back to john kale so i'm curious to find out from you michael how john came to sign to z for that extraordinary record music for a new society and then two more albums so what's what's the story what happened there between spy and music for a new society John made a record called Oniswa with Mike Thorne. Yeah, it's it was on A and M, wasn't it? I think it was on A and M. Yeah, it's got a fantastic song on it, but it didn't hit. And so John was without a recording label, and we had stayed in touch. And I had always wanted to make a solo record with John, just him and voice and piano. And so. And I'd always loved I Keep a Close Watch. Oh, yeah. From Helen of Troy? Helen of Troy, exactly. And so we started working on this record, and he brought Brian Eno in. And he just added more and more touches to it. But it's basically a solo piano record. And that's, that's what it is. And that was what we wanted. And then it was so extraordinary. It was um, after Onisoir, which was... You know, a a record where he wasn't really present in that record was right. the problem. It was a brilliantly produced record, but but it wasn't. This was getting John to his essence. So I always think about the Velvet Underground. You know, there's two. I'm now actually rethinking this, but I always thought there are people who like the first two albums. There are people who like the second two albums. Uh, the first two albums to me are the Velvet Underground. The second two albums are folk albums. <laughs> but now, now I've been thinking that one could actually like the first album and Loaded, or the second album and the third album. So I, I'm not sure. Very open-minded of you, Michael. <laughs> yeah, but, but di- one is allowed to like. Them. Yeah, but they are they are different, and all yeah. four are the greatest. You know four consecutive band albums ever. So that's not in dispute in my view. But so that was why we got back together. And I felt that I was, I remember buying Paris 1919. I remember buying all those records. And this was getting back to that. And then Caribbean Sunset, which I love as well, is playing on that. But the live album was Island's idea because 
his band was just so good then, and they were touring Europe. And then we added those two songs, which I had hoped would be, I had really thought that uh, Ooh La La would be a hit, but it wasn't. Right. Um, Okay. Well, I mean, Music for a New Society was a very remarkable and unexpected thing when it came out. And and I interviewed, funny enough, I remember going to Ireland in Hammersmith and Rob Partridge had set up the interview as we were talking about him. And I sat in this room with John and we managed to almost share a, a bottle of famous grouse whiskey between us. <laughs> God knows, that's probably not even possible, but we were ab- we were paralytic yeah. by the end of the interview. And I just, I just was trying to understand where this very dark, scary, beautiful record had, had come from. And I mean, did it take you by surprise when he delivered it? Were you, were you shocked by how bleak it was? Well, I kept hearing it as it was, you know, I, I would hear it in the studio. Okay. So I sort of knew what was coming, but yeah, it, hearing the whole thing, it was really, something else it was it was extraordinary and then you know we put out a single that had a z label on one side and an island label on the other side with i keep with the two versions of i keep a close watch right on it i keep a close watch on this heart of mine It also felt like it was going back to my roots because when I was a teenager, Island Records was everything to me. And the first time I met Chris Blackwell, I asked him specifically about John Cale and why he hadn't done more to sell more John Cale records. I was sitting next to him at dinner after a Bob Marley concert. And it was the first time I'd met him. And all I wanted to know was, you know, why he hadn't focused more on John. <laughs> so, <laughs> screw, screw Bob Marley. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. so he, he then asked me, you know, if there were any good bands in New York. And I took him to see Talking Heads. Okay. Right. So, Fantastic. So John was so important to me. Um, emotionally, making that record, it, it made Spy feel okay. We're friends to this day. I'm friends with all my artists, actually. Mm. So, mm. but yeah, so that was it. Okay. Well, it's a perfect time to to talk about Kale in relation to the Velvets because Mark and I have both just watched, I don't know whether Jasper's had a chance, but we've both watched the Todd Haynes documentary, which debuted on Apple TV here what, li- literally last week. And I managed to just see it before this, this podcast. And John is very central in it. So I'm going to ask Mark to tell us about the week's audio in, in relation to that, really. Yeah, this is uh, Tony Sherman interviewing John Cale in 2004. Tony's writing a book about Andy Warhol. And so this interview is very much focused on John first sort of becoming part of that scene and the very kind of the genesis of the Velvet Underground. You know, he starts off talking about what he was doing at the time, Lamont Young, the sort of the avant-garde music, being knocked out by the Beatles and suddenly sort of understanding that rock and roll had something for him, which I don't think he really understood before. And uh, about the state of Lou Reed when they first met and the process of his parents trying to eradicate his homosexuality. Jasper, let's play the first clip, which is very much about this. (laughs) 
Lou's experience of street life was really extensive. I mean, I mean, Midnight Cowboy. Hmm. I mean, he he been around. But at the same time, he wasn't allowed to come into Manhattan. I mean, he, it seemed he like had, he, he was he was under medication yeah. for shock treatment. Right, Placidil. And he was in a very fragile state, and it was awful. Was he under his parents' thumb? Very much so. I mean, my understanding was that they put him... I could not believe why anybody would think that putting people through shock treatment would do this, but I think they assumed that they would eradicate his homosexuality. Shiny, shiny, shiny boots of leather With flash girl child in the dark What can you say to that? I mean, it's, yeah. Jesus. And we will play a, a clip at the end, which sort of, to some extent, goes, goes into that even further. He talks about his own Welsh family background, actually being a Welsh speaker, having to sort of le- effectively learn English. He talks about his problem with Bob Neuwirth, as we referred to earlier, his problem with Bob Neuwirth. He talks about the people around the scene, Paul Morrissey, Billy Name, Gerard Malanga, and so on and so forth, and the whole early Warhol scene at the Dom. Uh, let's listen to the, the next clip. This is kind of about him, about Warhol and Lou. Mm-hmm. I never thought that Andy was an evil Machiavellian figure. I mean, I never got that feeling. Yeah. He, I knew he could play games, and I certainly thought that he, he gave Lou a run for his money. Yeah. I mean, Lou loved to play games, but Andy was faster than him. Yeah. And on top of it, Andy was more playful. Yeah. Because Lou's games always ended up acrimoniously. Yeah. It always got to be really nasty, and how vicious you could be in your in your mm-hmm. cutting. I don't know just where I'm going. Yeah. Well, so yeah. in some extent, this really parallels the documentary, I think, because there's so much in there about this love-hate relationship between yeah. Lou Reed and John Cale. It's, it's, it's really, really fascinating. I mean, uh, have you seen it, Michael? Yes, I actually went to see it at the ICA. I'd wanted to go see it at the ICA because I saw Chelsea Girls and Lonesome Cowboys and Don't Look Back at the ICA okay. when, we were, when I was at school. So it, it just wasn't that successful, but it just felt a little thin, but I think it's because that auditorium was so poor and the audio was so bad. But I did like, I thought Jonathan Richman was fantastic. Yes, absolutely. The firing of John was a really interesting part that, of that Absolutely. Yes. Sterling is dispatched to sort of essentially tell him, oh, oh by the way, you're not coming with us to Cleveland, I think. <laughs> something, something along yes. those lines. I'm g- going back to this, uh, that uh, he talks about sort of the Velvet Underground themselves. I mean, it's interesting is that um, Tony Sherman's fairly scathing about Mo Tucker's drumming, and actually John Cale is marvellous about it. You know, why it was so central to the sound of that band was Maureen Tucker's drumming uh he's le- he's less nice about sterling morrison i think there was he he 
he, he and Sterling Morrison obviously clearly had some problems. He's very generous about Lou Reed's ability to write a song completely off the cup. You know, he more or less says in this interview that Lou can go down to the shops to buy some cigarettes or something, come back and write a song about that actual activity on the spot. He talks quite extensively about recording the first album, which is, which is a very interesting process in itself, and about how touring outside New York was a very difficult process, like playing the West Coast. And that was one of the things which ended their relationship with Andy Warhol, was exactly that. And he does talk about the relationship with Andy Warhol in some details. It's, 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 it's very long. It's one hour, 47 minutes. It's a long interview. Mm. But, uh, and there's a lot of Tony Sherman in it because Tony's already done a lot of research, so he's, he's telling John the stuff that he's already found out. But it's very interesting. Uh, and actually, in the light of watching the documentary, I found it very interesting. I, I thought the documentary was a really good attempt to tell a very, very difficult story to tell with very few resources to do it with. And I'm astonished that, given that the Velvet Underground were effectively a house band for filmmakers, there's so little footage of them. They were filmed so rarely by Warhol and his, his, his crew. I enjoyed the documentary. I didn't think it was great. I think the curate's egg, you know, good in parts, but yeah. I, I, I did enjoy it. Would you have liked it better if Doug Yule had been on as well? Uh, a lot of people have been saying, where's Doug Yule in this story? And that's a, it's, 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 it's a good point. I, I'm afraid I'm the first two, al- we were talking earlier, I'm the, yeah. the first two albums guy with a sort of a dash of the third album and Loaded is my least favourite and Loaded is very much Doug Yule's record in, in, in many ways. Well, Oh Sweet Nothing and New Age yeah. are my two favourite ballads of theirs, I okay. think. Well, and rock and so, roll, I mean, is Rock and roll's pretty amazing, yeah. It's one of the greatest songs <laughs> ever written <laughs> yeah. about rock and roll. She started singing to that fine, fine music You know her life was saved by rock and roll Despite all the amputations You know you could just go out and dance to the rock and roll station It was And Sweet Jay. And Sweet Jay. Oh, yeah, Sweet Jay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. it's not bad. It's not a bad record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, All right. And two-thirds of it is bloody brilliant. I, I mean, yeah. I, I was very lucky that my brother, who's five years older than me, was very alert to what was going on. I mean, I was 12 in 1968. But by then, I, I was already listening to the Velvet Underground. Which... Far too early to be listening to the Velvet Underground. Well, it England... should have been a parental advisory. Yeah, I was going to say that must have been a bit, you know, difficult. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it, it was absolutely great. I mean, sister, the first album he brought home was White Light, White Heat when it came out as an American mm. import. And it absolutely knocked me flat. And then he then he brought Velvet Underground and Nico. The, the, and again, American import, the gatefold sleeve and the peelable banana and everything like that. And I didn't know anyone else who was listening to Velvet Underground at that time. None there of my school, many. none of there my school many, friends no. were. Yeah, no, no. So, so I don't know. It's just that there was the, yeah. is a big part of weirdly big part of my early teens. Yeah, and <laughs> I, probably Michael's. Well, I heard it at our old school. A friend of ours borrowed it from the local library, <laughs> and we went into the music room at Westminster, Mister Baird's room. I remember where, it. Which had, it had stereo, and that's where I first heard it. That's so funny, because that's where I first heard Horses by Patti Smith. Oh my gosh, very, it shows yeah, how young yeah, you yeah. are. I'm, really <laughs> I'm so jealous. You baby. I, I mentioned that only because we were talking about it last week, with uh, or two, two weeks ago when Paul Morley was on yeah. the podcast, and it came back to me that I was in that music room and someone had brought in Horses. Anyway... 
yeah. but the Velvets, I mean, did, did you feel the film did justice to the achievements of that group, Michael? I'm I'm going to rewatch the film. Yeah, with Velvets fans. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I mean, I think I thought it was a very, very good stab at a very, very difficult story to tell. You know, yes. it'll never be perfect. It'll never no. be perfect inherently. But well, partly because Lou's not around to, to contribute. Although you do hear him talking yeah. quite a lot. In, but there is incredible footage in it, for yeah. sure, that we can't all yeah. have seen before. So Todd Haynes did a good job unearthing yeah, that. You don't learn anything, do you, really? Uh, we, I mean, I learned a few things that I probably should have known already. But yes. but, but yeah, as as, <laughs> as a, a professional music velvet <laughs> yeah. fanatic, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, did the vel- I mean, just the velvets? Did they play some part in you moving to New York? Did they did they shape your idea of what Manhattan was like when you moved there in seventy oh, five? Of course, yeah, they yeah, did. Yeah, the velvets. The Stooges played a huge, a huge part in it mm-hmm. as well, even they, though they were, you know, from Detroit. Absolutely. And then the Talking Heads played me the Modern Lovers that first, like, that first year. Yeah, yeah. So all of, all of that. I mean, John's producing career subsequently. I don't know who had, I was actually thinking, wondering who had the more illustrious career subsequent to the Velvet Underground, whether it's Lou or John, because it's extraordinary what John produced. Mm. It really is. I agree, but but I suppose that most people would think of Lou before they think of John, and then most people wouldn't know of the records that John produced, the incredibly important yeah. proto-punk records that John produced, I would think. And also, he's such a... He's such an interesting personality, isn't he? I mean, I think he comes over really well in this audio interview. And I think yeah. he's actually, he, I mean, people talk about what a dark, saturnine Welshman he was. <laughs> you know, gloomy, gothic. He, the pictures of him with that hairstyle, he looks like something out of a kind of satanic horror movie, you know. But, I mean, he compared to Lou Reed. He's a, he's actually kind of a decent but, guy, I think. Really engaging, and he's got a not, really nice laugh on him as well. You know, I mean, that he, he laughs easily. In fact, Tony does ask him about his reputation for being angry, and he sort of he tries to sort of unpack that a bit, not very successfully. But it's, you know, well, I was sort of a bit like that then, but I'm less like that now. Is a sort of line, but um, no, it's good. It's good stuff. It's good oh, stuff. Fantastic. So it's great to talk about. We we have to bring your story somewhat up to date. So sir. Look at the mid eighties. You you decide that that running um, a sort of a, a fairly successful record label isn't perhaps what you were meant to do. And you, well, let's just say you move you move to to Texas and you got into the energy business. And yeah. I, I I think it's 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 not entirely incorrect to say that you made slightly more money out of the energy business than you did. <laughs> Out of, yes. out of, yeah, wheel me out, uh, or or the waitresses, indeed. And and so you've been there. You you started Zilker Energy in '86, I think, and then um, now that's more about renewable energy. And we we don't need to talk in great depth about that. But I'm very, no. I, I, I do want to mention that. So in one of these pieces, fascinatingly, back in 1981, you say what I'd really like to do. Is start a, is a book publishing company. Yes, I'd like a book publishing company that didn't have to make ends meet, but then I'd try and make it make ends meet. So that is you talking, I think, to 
to Paul Rambali in that piece. And so many years later, you do start a book publishing company. And, and a wonderful thing it is too. And it's called Z Books. Tell us about it. Well, it was amazing reading that quote. Right, you'd forgotten. Because it's, I'd forgotten. And it, it was exactly, I, it's exactly what I'm doing. And I would like my book company to make ends meet. I've had some experience in publishing because a friend from university and I had a publishing company called Carlton Books, which was a super commercial publishing company. Yes, that, I didn't realize yeah, that was you. Did, did FIFA and the Olympics yeah. and various oh. museums and music books. We did Queen, Brian May's publisher. So I had no I've idea had, that was you. Yeah, I had no so, idea that was you. So, but then we sold it because my friend had a health scare. And this book publishing company now, actually it goes back to that scene then because just as I had the press in England, in America, Glenn O'Brien, who was this brilliant critic, would write an interview magazine. He had Glenn O'Brien's beat and he would write about all my bands. And I became friends with him. And, you know, he did, he gave, we did a film together, Downtown 81, that stars Jean-Michel Basquiat. And it's the first time Jean-Michel actually mm. paints on a canvas mm. and Kid Creole and are in it. And so is James White and Suicide at the end. So Glenn was dying of cancer and I wanted to honor him in some way. So I put this book together. And then I figured that if the book was part of a series, it would, you know, get a second and a third and a fourth chance as subsequent books come out. That has not happened so far, but I'm hoping that it will. So the sales are not very good. But I was in England last week to try and secure distribution. And I think I've got distribution and I'll have it sort of for next autumn. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. I'm only going to publish really, really good writers. And Adele Bertai, who has been on your podcast, yes. her memoir of growing up in Cleveland in oh, yeah. various reform homes. That's my big book next fall. And I'm hoping that that will be my breakthrough. Oh, fantastic. Aww. We can't wait to, Brilliant. Can't wait to get yeah. that. Because yeah, her fantastic. two books are so beautiful that she's yes. published. The they are, Peter they? and I... the Wolves and the LaBelle. We, we, yeah. we adored her when she was on our podcast. Mm -hmm. She was just such a yeah. marvellous guest. So interesting and funny and just all kinds of great stuff. Yeah, yeah. And also just to say, you know, we, we managed to get Glenn O'Brien on Rock back pages very early on and I was yeah. always I felt it gave us a kind of imprimatur that we yeah. wouldn't have got otherwise uh, and I was very grateful to him I think he's one of the great writers not just music writers mm -hmm. and so I was delighted to see that anthology that you, you put together and I also just want to mention you have Mary Gateskill on your roster and you're doing an event yes. I believe tomorrow night in Houston yes. with Mary who I think is one of the, the most brilliant fiction writers in America uh, and was also a music journalist at one point yes and that that book is it really all comes together that book is really interesting there's never been anything like it she's actually going to be talking to Greil marcus about it in san francisco on tuesday i'm going i'm going on tour with her she's the first author i've had who's alive post-covid that I can take on tour with me. So the book has a short story and then ac extracts from various novels and then Mary discussing all 
what she was thinking when she wrote those books. And we were originally, I thought we would have to do it using different typefaces so you would know where you were. But our brilliant designer who has designed all my books, Jiminy Ha, yeah, figured out this... beautiful this, books. Yeah, this color coding in the gutter where you have the different colors to a different color to tell you whether you're in the devil's treasure, the story, whether you're revisiting a novel or whether it's Mary today. And so it's really, really beautiful. It's sort of a deconstruction of the novel. Wow. (laughs) Of of, of the book, of the book. Sorry, not the novel. I hope that tour goes well. I mean, I've not read everything she's written, but uh, I find her, she's a sort of startlingly great writer, quite shocking in in many of her stories and so forth. But we've got to try and get her on Rock's Back Pages. I don't know how much music journalism she did. I tried to get a Radiohead piece of hers into our Radiohead anthology, and she was initially open to the idea and then and then just actually i've decided against it but anyway i hope that goes well and i hope your tour goes well thank you and it's been it's just been fantastic speaking to you about your your career michael if you'd be good enough to stick around we're just going to go through some of the pieces that we've added to rocks back pages in the last fortnight so i'm going to hand over to mark here jump in yeah just jump in with any comments okay uh last week um the Cure's Robert Smith interviewed by Chris Bond for NME in 1981, so his kind of early Cure days. He said, I told Social Security to give the jobs to those that want them, that I'd rather stay at home listening to music. And this took me right back to 1981, where I spent about four years on the dole trying to get bands together. That was the good old days before Thatcher ruined all of that. It's all about uh, 1981, really. It's all today, about 1981. <laughs> yeah. uh, Stevie Wonder interviewed by Michael Goldberg, Rolling Stone, 1987. He says, when I did Superstition at the Apollo using the synthesizers and stuff, it was, oh, man, you messing up. You fucking up now. I love the idea that the stuff that we now regard as just, you know, as good as Deathless it gets. Art. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah. He says, even with technology today, you still have to have some kind of feel for the groove, putting the puzzle together to make the pieces fit right. That's great. Very true. Kirsty McCall is interviewed by Catelyn Moran for The Times in, in, in March 95. And this is Catelyn reporting what happened. She said, she's sitting on the edge of the bath, wrapped in a fake leopard skin coat and squinting quizzically while smoking a cigarette. I'm on my hands and knees, throwing up with all the force and natural beauty of Mount Vesuvius. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you do remind me of myself when I was your age, Kirsty says, sniffing, then biting on her lower lip to keep from laughing. Are you sure you're okay? I feel a bit guilty. I just love it. <laughs> why Why has she ended up throwing up in, the, in Kirsty McCall? Because the, the interview just turned into oh, a massive oh. drinking fest. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, they just got fantastically drunk. Okay, uh, this week, Jamie McCluskey III, who's actually Eden for KRLA Beats, 1966, interviewed Mama Cass about Mama Cass wanting to meet the Beatles, and actually specifically John Lennon. So they come to England. She says, the first day we went to a club and Ringo was there. I mean, it was really Ringo sitting there. I didn't know how to get over that. I just love the idea of a star being starstruck. A star, yeah, completely, completely. <laughs> Mitch Mitchell, Jimi Hendrix Experience, interviewed by David Griffith's Record Mirror. And he talks about the experience of being a long-haired going to America, a long-haired Englishman going to America in 1967. He says, in New York, they gave us a hard time. I suppose they all thought we were poofs. Spelt with a V, I hope. With a V, absolutely. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Sam Sutherland interviewing Donald Fagan around Time of the Night Fly, High Fidelity 83. This is great. He says, the E.T. in my bedroom was Thelonious Monk. Everything that he represented was totally unworldly in a way. Mm, Which, beautiful. 
I think that's really nice. You know, just beautiful. Absolutely. Um, Love the idea of having Thelonious Monk sort of hiding in the cupboard. <laughs> like, reaching out like with his finger. Like E.T. Yes, reaching yes. out with his finger. Yes. Thelonious <laughs> Monk, call As home. It, yes, call home, phone, phone home. Yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah, phone home. <laughs> Nick Kent, big Nick Kent piece on the, the Smiths from The Face, April 87. And this sort of ends thus. It says, Tamar, the crusader's simple, the Smiths, the great white hope of the 80s, deserve to be more than a cottage industry, to be as massive as possible in the name of the game. And the game plan for this year begins over in America with a double album, Louder Than Bombs. Whether Morrissey agrees in practice remains a contentious point. Smithdom, in many respects, is his version of Ambrosia, the fantasy land Billy Lyron inhabited. It's given him a place to live out his adolescence, given him a frame he so craved, yet which he hasn't, hasn't made him contented. Faced by the pressure of success, he has often buckled and vacillated endlessly in matters of life as it has lived. I mean, this is, uh, the irony of this is this is April 87, and by July 87, Marr had walked out of the band. So it, it, right. it's about those sorts of tensions sort of going on. Yeah, I do remember that piece actually very well. And very lastly, Winter Marsalis interviewed by Tony Sherman from American Heritage. It's a huge interview, 10,000 words. I didn't reiterate the point about Marsalis being a reactionary by quoting him being reactionary. But he's quite interesting. When I started playing, my concept of jazz was, this means I can solo and people will clap for me. When I joined Art Blakey, he was always telling us, man, you've got to play more like a group, man, soloing all night ellipses ellipses when your solo is over stop playing <laughs> um which, which, too true which, which, too is, true. which is good it's yeah. a it's a really it's a really great piece ten as i said ten and a half thousand words um okay and Something to get your teeth stuck into and apparently had a real impact with a lot of people actually picked up on marsalis's because this is before the ken burns jazz jazz documentary and it's almost the first time people realized what a reactionary marsalis was though we've talked about him a previous podcast, so we won't go any Episode further. 111. Check it out. <laughs> <laughs> That's my lot. Okay. I'm going to mention just one thing in the context of the fact that we have started transcribing some of our audio interviews. And one of them, one of the most recent, is actually with Chris Blackwell. So since we were already talking about him, from 1989, um, it's an interview uh, that John Tobler did with Chris not long after Ireland was sold to Polygram. So it's it's just very interesting about a lot of the artists that Chris signed, but also his business relationships with with Sonnet and, you know, how Ireland is going to change, you know, uh, in the new Polygram era. So that's probably it. There's a great interview with Slick Rick from last year by <laughs> Ben Merlis, who's recently come on board Rock's Back Pages. So it's revisiting the great adventures of Slick Rick album uh, 30 years on. But I mean, and I always forget that, that Slick Rick was born in Mitcham in Surrey, yeah. Um, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. A, a fact I love. Anyway, it's a great interview. And um, I'll what's hand over to... What, what's good yeah. about Slick Rick is that he never tried to conceal his English accent. You listen no, to Slick Rick, it's, yeah. it's absolutely, you know, it's exactly. what makes them compelling. S- I South think. London, yeah. Yeah, it is <laughs> yeah. great. Jasper, over to you. A few things just briefly. The first of which, sorry, Michael, is, is actually about a football 
related song because we're all football fans it sometimes comes yes. out on the podcast um and it's and it's actually it's, it's about elvis and it's about a remix of an elvis song that was massive in it's 2002 lisa verico writing in the times the king is dead cool because jxl junkie xl dutch dj i think remixed a little less conversation oh. uh, and it became like the unofficial world cup anthem because it was featured on a nike advert directed by terry gilliam this really when it features like paul Skulls and Ronaldo and Thierry Henry and Eric Cantona playing this tournament on this boat. It's absurd. I watched it earlier. It's Fantastic. just absurd, excellent TV advert featuring this this actually kind of great remix of. of it was a great remix, actually, wasn't it? Fantastic. So I just, drums. just wanted to mention that as a funny article. A uh, nice little kind of time capsule period piece there. The other thing is a review of New Orleans Funk Volume 3, which is in a series of compilations put out by Soul Jazz Records, and it's John Doran in the Quietus in November 2013. And it's a really good review. It's quite a long review, and he, he, he starts it off by saying, in 2000, on the odd occasion... There were people back at my house drinking cocktails after the pub kicked out. Then they'd be guaranteed to get up and start dancing within minutes of me putting the original Soul Jazz New Orleans Funk compilation on. And I dare say if I was still holding impromptu boozy late night house parties, then this excellent third volume would have exactly the same effect. And I love New Orleans Funk. But he goes on to say that the reason he included that introduction is to point out that he'd be a massive hypocrite if he pretended to have a problem with the fetishization of black music from previous generations. He clearly does himself. But at the same time, I should say that I have a deep suspicion that there's something unwholesome about people who fetishize black music from the 50s, 60s and 70s while switching noticeably to all-white contemporary sounds. Like black music's just super when it's been through a two or three decade quarantine That's period. very, very good like point. Like it's fine wine, not living, breathing, evolving culture. In short... It's never just about the music. Uh, that, that's a, that's a, that's a great point because I mean it sends me. I mean, as you all know, I mean I'm passionate about black music, and I myself fell into that trap in in the eighties. Is that I I was yeah. always looking like five ten years before the the present day, and was very dismissive of current R and B at, at that time. And it's it's a very bad it's a it's it's a bad it's hole. A very bad habit. It's yeah. a very in, bad including habit. including Prince Mark. Oh no, I love I love Prince, but in a kind of weird sort of way, he transcended the whole "is it R and B" thing. You know, you, you know, I did love I, I love some, I love some stuff. You know, Alexandra O'Neill or whatever. But there was great swathes of R and B. I d- yeah. I couldn't listen to it at the time, and uh, it, it was, I was wrong. You know, it's it's just putting my hands up. That it's it's, it's, yeah. a, it's a very it's a, it's a it is really interesting, and I think John does a really good job of talking about it in this article. He, he talks a lot about the compilation, how great you know all those artists are, the Meters and. Yeah. And uh, Lee Dorsey and, you know, all those great bands, but kind of says, well, it concludes on a note of saying, well, you know, perhaps you should consider going out and buying a Lil Wayne record to complement this one. Yeah. Which I think is a kind of fabulous point to make is like there is, you know, there's a living, breathing culture of music in New Orleans that isn't just looking backwards. Sure. And I think that's an important point. Lastly, just briefly, Mark, you might might appreciate this one. It's about Moroccan Gnawa, <laughs> which, you know, is from, from Essa Wira. 
where you have a have a link to. Yes, and it just it's it's John Lewis in Uncut writing about Gnawa, and it's a really nice brief piece about the genre, which is which is described as a hypnotic racket made using metallic castanets, krakebs, a large drum, tabel, and acoustic bass gembri. And there's a great bit where one Gnawa player, El Kibaj, says that he's convinced that slap bass is similar to the way Malems play on the gembri. It was a thrill for me that the great bassist Marcus Miller came back from our festival in Essaouira with a Gembri and then played it on his album in a collaboration with Chuck D. It made me feel proud. Just a nice article yeah, no, it's like, and, I mean, and a really interesting it's genre some, of music. Some, something that Michael and I have so loosely in common is some of my ancestry is the, the Jews who were expelled from Iraq around 200 BC and ended up in Morocco. <sighs> That's a, a chunk of me is is that right. so so we've got that sort of mesopotamian jewish common heritage <laughs> perhaps we should just leave you guys you know for to talk yeah. about that for another hour <laughs> <laughs> i'd love to know more about that music actually i don't know where it's, i was listening to it before we were recording and it is it is fantastic it also talks about there's a, a techno producer who's interviewed james holden who collaborated with with a with a Gnawa player and talks about how there's a kind of similarity between the kind of hypnotic repetitious beats and and it, it is a it's great to listen to it's a it's a fascinating sound i love the idea of marcus miller in essaria yeah, i had i'd never <laughs> I mean jimmy hendrix that. and frank zappa and jefferson airplane all went to essaria apparently oh, I yeah. This okay. article. Oh, yeah. yeah i mean when you're there someone always you're in a taxi yeah. and they'll point to the house and say that's where jimmy hendrix was staying you know okay <laughs> you get okay. a lot of that <laughs> that's so, good to know that's my lot Great. Well, that does bring us to the end of the episode. And we will be back in a couple of weeks with Lenny Kay, but also celebrating with Lenny 20 years of Rock's Back Pages. Yes, folks, come November, we are <laughs> 20 years old. And so we're going to be celebrating that in various different ways. But we will be talking a bit about just how Rock's Back Pages came together and the history of music journalism. And of course, talking to the great Lenny Kay, who we love and was one of the first great American rock writers and has a novel out called Lightning Striking. So we will, we will look forward greatly to hosting Lenny. And I'm sure we'll enjoy that almost as much as we've enjoyed your company today, Michael. It's It's been a real treat. Thank it's you so much, much for joining us. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's been <laughs> great. Very nice. Yeah. Um, and uh, enjoy. Yeah. I mean, good luck with all the, you know, future Z books projects Thank and tomorrow indeed. night. Send this fanboy's regards to Mary gate school <laughs> and uh, Absolutely. yeah that's it from all of us and mark will just talk us out with the the, the final audio clip from john kale what electroshock therapy did to lou reed is essentially mm. what this clip's about the cheery note to end cheery note yeah. To end. <laughs> dark stuff this uh, yeah. but it is an advice inter- it's interesting yeah, yeah it is interesting so well thanks again for joining us michael and goodbye Thank to you. all our listeners bye bye, bye. I don't know if you've read anything about shock therapy, but one of the things it does is it removes all kinds of, not just inhibitions, but value judgments. Mm. I've just... You have no feeling for people. Yeah. And it, it erases that. That's one of the things that goes, while it, you know, while wow. it uh, gets rid of the anger, it also gets rid of moral judgments and stuff like that.
That was John Cale in conversation with Tony Sherman in 2004, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Michael Zilker. Visit the ZBooks website at zbooks.com. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.